And I'm going to hit the intro button. The music will go, and uh, we'll get started. Here we go. Hello, and welcome into the Section 109 podcast from Studio Breezy. There's no Mix and Toby today. They're with their grandparents, but we do have Bobo Juan, Matthew, and CEO Alton Bird. AB, thank you for joining us. No, oh, thank you for having me. Good to be here. Are you cool if we call you AB? Yes. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, we already did that. That, uh, yeah, that's that is easily the most simple way to to uh, to get my name right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you do you have a? Um, I would assume here, especially with a part with Alton Park as a neighborhood being a, a pretty established part of Chattanooga. Are you getting a lot of mispronunciations of your name? There are. Yeah. That that happens more regularly than I would expect, but that's you know that's to be expected. Nobody knew who I was, and mm. I'm pretty sure that the universe hasn't run into many Altons <laughs> in their in their time on the planet. So we'll, we'll, we make it work. How did the Brits? What did the Brits call you? And we're going to get into your journey, but I know you spent a lot of time in the UK. It's hilarious. They 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 called me a lot of things, none of which started with my name um, <laughs> as a player, but. Most of them called me Alton. And then there was one supporters group in Doncaster in England who started taking the mickey out of me, and they started calling me Alltin, A-L-L-T-I-N, because they said, you can you can never be fouled when you're on the court, so you're, you're really the tin man. I was like, okay, that, that has reached some new levels here. So I was christened Alton, um, but everybody in the UK called me Alton. Yeah. So you haven't been able to get away from it? No. No. I, that's why AB kind of came to fruition. It was easy. Everybody could remember the first two letters of the alphabet. <laughs> sure, sure. And so it made sense. Well, and as another guy who has AB as initials, it's good initials. They're great initials, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, right before we get into your soccer journey questions, I want to start out hot on this podcast. What is your most controversial food take, do you think? Well, let me qualify the question. When you say food take, what do you mean by food take? Food opinion. Um, meaning, I believe that hot dogs are better with mayonnaise. That is not a common uh, thought. In fact, for Matthew, it's heresy. Um, the Brits like beans on toast, which I think most Americans think is heresy. Um, everyone, I think, has food opinions that are unpopular, but they, they stick to, right? They feel very strongly about. Do you have a, a food opinion or a food take that is very uh, dear to you that maybe others might disagree with? I do, and they relate to onions. Okay. That I think onions are easily the most antisocial social food group <laughs> on the planet. Why? Because to a lot of people, they taste great, but they absolutely ruin everything else about your social being during the course <laughs> right after that. So I, I'm not an onion guy. I don't, I don't, I can't. I can't correlate onions and then being able to have any kind of social interaction with another human being without blowing their hair back. Yeah. <laughs> so no onions for you. So no onions for me. Okay. Okay. No onions on the burger. All right. So let's go. Uh, let's go back to when when you were a kid. Obviously, you've got a long history of being a professional athlete and a, a professional sports executive. Um, so take us back to the start of your playing career, if you would, and that might be uh, when you started playing as a kid, and kind of take us through. You know, where'd you grow up? What's your story? And then, yeah, let's kind of go from there. Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco. I'm I'm a, I think a rare person. You usually don't find people who were born and raised in San Francisco because mm. they're usually a transplant for technology reasons or for professional reasons. Most people who lived in San Francisco moved once housing got to be crazy. Once sure. the price of their family houses went beyond a certain number, it was like, well, why don't we just sell our house and move somewhere way more affordable? With that said, I started playing sports at 7. So I played. I started playing basketball at seven. I played basketball, baseball, and soccer. Um, I played soccer for about three weeks. Uh, my, <laughs> well, the reason why is I played in a league where I was faster than everybody else. I scored six goals in my first two games, and then I was discouraged from coming back because they were like, you're just not good. You're way too good, and you should play somewhere else. I have other reasons why I think that happened, but that mm. said, I was like, Okay, so I started playing baseball. I started playing basketball. I, I think I played basketball because it was the easiest 
and least expensive of all the sports, and I could do it myself, kind of like soccer. The two sports that are the world's maybe most popular sports are the two most inexpensive sports. You don't need pads. You don't need to play with anybody else. You can develop your skills. You can get better day by day, hour by hour if you work at it. So I played, started playing basketball. Um, I loved baseball. It is my first love. Mm. Um, but when I got to high school, it, it just became, we didn't practice at school. We had to go to another site to practice. And, you know, my day just became ridiculously long. You're, my first class was quarter to eight. My last class was three o'clock. We didn't practice until five. We finished practice at seven. Then I had to go back across town, San Francisco. I'd get home at nine o'clock. And so baseball became the, nah, basketball. Practice started at 3.30. I was home by five. Homework by seven. Back in the gym by 7.15. It was a much more social sport. So I started, I gave up baseball sophomore year in high school and I played basketball literally every day that I humanly possibly could. Uh, I read Outliers um, and, you know, the entire 10,000 hours to become, I, I kind of feel like I, I became a master of basketball because I did 10,000 hours in a summer. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, that was my way of getting really good at it. So that, that, that basketball journey uh, really was created starting at seven and then we had a schoolyard literally two blocks from my house and i spent most of my waking hours you know (laughs) nights weekends there was a rec center not far from me and and the truth is i loved it i knew i could get better at it and you know while i was small i just thought i could develop the skills that i would be able to progress with and when i got to high school i got to be even better at it now, in baseball, what position did you play? Second base. Well, uh, he, he, here's how you get how the sport outgrows you. Hmm. So I was a pitcher in Little League, a really good pitcher. And then I went, obviously, to the bigger diamond, and the fastball became a, a changeup. And <laughs> so our coach said, you probably want to play second base. And so I played second base. I, I, I love baseball, but... Like, at the end of the day, it, it just socially didn't work with school and education. And, sure. Yeah. Um, but I loved baseball, and I played second base, played a little bit of shortstop. And uh, as the diamonds got bigger, I didn't. And my <laughs> arm, which was super effective on a smaller diamond, just, you know, just kind of petered out then. Uh, did you have a favorite number to wear in baseball? Um, I think there's not a kid in San Francisco that didn't want to wear 24 for Willie Mays. Um, to me, he's the greatest baseball player ever. Mm. Um, and the Giants have always been my home baseball team. So, you know, if you look at the lineage with, you know, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Barry Bonds, uh, Bobby Bonds, like they just had all kinds of great players and everybody wanted to wear 24. Well, I did. I wanted to wear 24. And then in basketball, point guard? I played the point. Um, I've never played anything but the point. My size kind of moves me out of power forward, center, small forward, and <laughs> off guard. So I played the point and uh, have always had the ball in my hands or always had the ball in my hands. And, you know, my skills evolved from from that. Um, and so I, I was comfortable. And I, I played the point literally from the, t- the first time I touched the ball to – the last time I touched the ball. Were you a scorer first or a passer first? Passer first. Um, I had this belief that if I made everybody else around me better, that there would be rewards for that. And I just, by nature, um, am unselfish. I kind of like people to get better. Um, It's kind of translated into my business career. How can I develop? How can I grow talent? How can I help people grow? but I've always been a pass-first point guard. Gotcha. Did you develop a, 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 sh- a scoring streak later in your career? Or I mean, what I mean by that is like, did your did your game develop as you got older, or were you always just a pass-first, make the? Yeah, they were, you know, every game kind of determined the strategic direction of how I saw the game flow. So there'd be games where I'd get thirty-five, 
those are games we usually lost. <laughs> um, and only because if my job was to help people score and to create opportunities for me for efficient scoring, and I had to do that job, it means that everybody else was having an off night. Mm. And that wasn't going to be good for us overall. Yeah. The distribution of the ball. I kind of liken my role to a midfielder. Like if you're really good as a midfielder in football and soccer, you're spraying the ball all over the place and people have really cool opportunities to score. If you're the guy that's got to score two or three goals in a in a football match, you're going to have some challenges. That means your guys up front aren't getting the service they should. Yeah. That makes sense. I noticed you, um, I went through your Wikipedia, which I hadn't done, which someone's got to update that, y'all. Uh, no longer the senior vice president of community relations and growth properties, which we'll definitely get to. Um, but I also noticed you were the four-time uh, BBL MVP. Yep. So that's one of the reasons I asked about the scoring question, because I, I, not a lot of, it's hard to get an MVP award without being a without being a scorer. Well, and... And, and I'm not the, saying you couldn't score. That's why yeah, I was asking the question. The teams I played for during the times that I got MVP and I won them 10 years apart. I won back to back when I first got to Europe and then back to back in 1991. And the teams that I played on were all time great Guinness world book of record type teams. Mm. Like, you know, as you know, in Europe, there's competitions, there's multiple competitions. There's your league, then there's your league cup, then there's the playoffs and then there's another cup and then there's another cup. And then there's, <laughs> Like, there's 52 different competitions. One year, we won all of them. We won. We were the first team ever in British basketball history to win all of the Cups. It was a clean sweep. Um, nice. But the role that I played was to facilitate and to make sure that in championship winning opportunities, we won. Um, we'd have great league seasons. Uh, so I kind of look at it as – not the guy that led the league in scoring, but the guy that was the most effective, um, similar to Steve Nash. You oh, yeah. Know? You, mm -hmm. If you take a Steve Nash or you take a Derrick Rose who won MVP, maybe not the league's leader in scoring, but exciting, team one. Most influential. Most influential, got to determine, come up with a steal, make it, get a rebound, take an offensive charge, something that shifted or or altered the game. And I did it enough during a whole season that four times people said, that's that guy's the best player in the league. So I was very lucky. And I have to say I played on some incredible teams, guys that probably were better players than me, but I think knitting it together made yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of American guys? We didn't have a lot of American guys, but as European rules changed, there, there was the Bosman ruling, which meant for the first time you could have this mix of the French could play as actual national players and the Italians could play in France and the French could play in Greece and the mm. Greeks could play in Belgium. And so we, we did have European players. Um, and then we also had naturalized Americans were guys that were born in the UK who lived in the United States and played college basketball who decided to go back to the UK to play. We had a lot of, uh, I would call, U.S. trained players, uh, U.S. coach players and collegiate players. Uh, so it, it actually helped. But for the most part, our team was British, English, and we had a really good developmental system where we created opportunities for kids to play at, at a high level. And our team played in Europe every year. So we were in the European Cup. We were in the Champions League Cup. We were, you know, a couple of times we were close to making the Final Four in the EuroLeague um, Cup. So we always had good English talent. What was that European competition like? I mean, um, amongst you're going, like, where all did you play outside of England on some of those? Like, what was that like? It was great. It was. <laughs> it, so I'll say, you know, my career, we played in every country in Europe at least twice. So you go to Greece, you go to Spain, you go to Italy, you go to France, you go to Belgium, you go to the you go to the Netherlands, Sweden. Uh, we went to Russia before the wall came down, which wow. was interesting. Uh, we played in Germany. Uh, we played in Czechoslovakia. So it, it's always great. I always say the greatest education you can get is travel. Mm. 
you get to see how the people live. You get to see what they eat. You get to see how they how they socialize, how they interact. Uh, it's just an incredible education to be able to travel. And every year, you know, every year we would do this bonding trip. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But we'd go on, we'd go on this road trip to start the season, and it would be two weeks. And we get in cars and carpool, and we drive from London to Belgium to Holland to to France, and you know it's fourteen days of craziness mixed in with that a game every other day. So you're playing seven games in fourteen days, and, <laughs> and it's a lot plus travel plus really bad hotels. The good thing about traveling in Europe is really hard to find a bad meal. Even if you want to look for a bad meal, it's hard to find one, especially France, Belgium, and Holland. Yeah, nice. Where's the? Uh, if could you choose? If you could choose one place where, like, you were offered, let's say, a job and a ridiculous salary and, and the perfect life, where would you move tomorrow? Um, Barcelona would be first. And Monaco would be second. There you go. <laughs> All right. Love okay. that answer. And the ironic thing is I turned down an offer to play in Monaco at AS Monaco, where Kemba Walker is going now. I turned down an offer to play there. My wife was pregnant with my daughter, and she was six months pregnant. The offer came. I got the offer to fly to Monaco to meet with Prince Albert and meet the coaching staff. And I had just signed a, an extension with the club I was with in Scotland and you know the owner of our team in Scotland said well if you go to Monaco you can't come back here even if you go for a visit and I said I understand that I just signed I'd done three years I'd signed a two-year extension and he was right and I didn't go and to this day I regret not. <laughs> I love Scotland I love the Scots they are the most loyal friendliest really cool people on the planet but that was one i was like yeah i think i'd probably still be there if, the, if uh i'd be speaking french both my children would be speaking french everybody would be speaking <laughs> french it'd be great food so. the pay the payday probably would have been. been pretty cool so <laughs> yeah let's let's go back a little bit um to to your high school uh talk about like i guess the recruiting process that you went through you ended up at Columbia mm -hmm. to play basketball there on the East Coast. Not um, just an athlete, got to have a big brain to be a Columbia man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of not a lot of guys go professional. Sorry, Columbia, out of the <laughs> Ivy out of the Ivy League schools or Columbia, right? Like it's more for the for the for the brains. So, yeah, yeah. Well, the recruiting process is I played high school basketball at a Catholic high school in San Francisco. Um, my first two years were kind of rocky. It 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 was. Um, a difficult transition to come from a neighborhood in San Francisco that was primarily primarily poverty driven to go to a private Catholic white high school in another part of the city. Uh, there was some human transitions. There were some, you know, I, there was some education. There was some racial education I had to kind of come to grips with. Like sometimes you're not always as welcome as you would hope to be. Um, and that happened my first year or two in high school. But as I started to kind of integrate myself into what is the culture of a really strict, focused educational opportunity, which is why my mother really wanted me to go, it's, it's a really funny story. I was supposed to go to a high school that was literally 15 minutes from my front door. And the day before I was due to register, um, one of my my eighth grade teachers said, hey, this high school would be better for you. And if you're really serious about playing basketball and getting a good education, you should go here. I listened to him. The problem was the high school was an hour away. And my mom went way left. Like, why would you go there and you could go here? It's both Catholic high schools, both. And so I ended up picking Reardon High School, went there an hour each way every day. A minimum of an hour each way every day was heavy for my mom to accept. But I got there. Um, freshman year, we had a good team. Sophomore year, I played JVs. I wasn't mature enough to play varsity. Uh, I wasn't physically or emotionally ready to play varsity. Um, and then I played 
varsity my junior year we were one of the five best teams in the state of california high school basketball in california is enormous Mm. it's huge uh we were really good and you know from there on like like senior year as a high school all-american i got recruited i got recruited by university of san francisco stanford uc berkeley um teams in idaho teams in washington teams in texas uh, Cornell, Columbia, and you know, all I kept hearing in my in my ear was my mom saying, "You have to be prepared for the day when you're not gonna be able to play. You have to get your education. You have to be realistic. Like, yo, you five seven, you weigh 142 pounds. Like, I don't know how much longer your career is gonna be." Jokes on her. Jokes on her. Um, <laughs> but she also she's also right. I'm sure Columbia yes. did you did you right. well. And and you know I had a chance to go to University of San Francisco and said like if I get into an Ivy League school I'm going Ivy and she wasn't happy about it. She tried to talk me into going to Stanford and say you should go to Berkeley. She wanted me to stay closer to home. Sure. And I was kind of on this curious journey, which has kind of been endemic about my life, is. Go on the journey. See what's out there. See what you can see. Learn what you can learn. Visit places. And I got into Columbia, and from there on, it was, you know, I I remember the first day I got into Columbia having been accepted. I played for Tom Penders, who then went on to Fordham, and he went to George Washington. He's in Texas's Ring of Honor. He's in Houston's Ring of Honor. He's the all-time leading winner at Texas basketball, Texas men's basketball. And um, I played for him. And from there, going to New York, the first day I got to New York, I just remember looking up in the sky and going, this is very different than San Francisco. <laughs> Everything was moving at warp speed. I felt like I was in some kind of warp speed, Star Wars. Um, everybody's moving faster. Uh, New Yorkers are about their business. There's no short, there's no kind of small talk. Yep, nope, off we go. So Mm. it was a real education. The process, uh, you know, a lot of people write letters and a lot of people call and a lot of people want to come visit and a lot of people watch you play. And, you know, you get to figure out. I think players spend more time loving the idea of being recruited than I do then they should because it's mutual you have to interview people much like they interview you Mm. you have to look at their track record you have to look at their history you have to ask the coaches what happened to this player what happened to that player why didn't he graduate where did he go how come he didn't play like those things matter so it was uh at columbia my recruit my first and and only recruiting trip i got a chance to have lunch at the top of what was the pan am building it's now the metlife building with julius irving's doctor <laughs> that's who i had lunch with i was like that's the that's who they sent that's for who you they sent for me to have lunch with it was a guy named dr sheldon Prichel, and we had lunch at the top of this building and i remember going like man if i get into this school I, i'm going here because like <laughs> all i could see was all these little yellow cabs at at like you know, 75 floors down. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Recruitment is um, stressful. Uh, I'm sure kids now with social media have a way different set of problems than we did. We didn't have yeah. social media. We didn't, you know, you could only call at a certain time. Your parents would pick up the phone and go, you can't talk to him right now. He's doing his homework. Yeah. Call tomorrow. There's and no, that, and uh, that could be John Wooden. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You're not talking to my son now. So yeah, yeah. It's very different. I think your uh, your recruiting lunch experience was a little nicer than mine. The uh, the the nice ribs at Montgomery Inn in, in, in Cincinnati were not uh, <laughs> not the same. Not quite the 75th floor of the MetLife building. It was, it was it was like wow. I remember being wowed. I was like, this is impressive. Now you got drafted by the Boston Celtics. I did. Uh, there's a on on TikTok and and which I'm not on, but I, reels and whatever else. I'm getting I'm getting a lot of funny content basketball wise. Mm-hmm. I grew up basketball fan. I don't know how I got in this in this um, lane of my algorithm, but I'm getting a bunch of like people talking about Larry Bird. Mm-hmm. Now you guys were drafted the same year, correct? We were. Um, were you in camp with him at all? I was. So 
a court, and you you can obviously plead the fifth on this if you or whatever if you don't want to talk. But they, they say he was a legendary trash talker. He was. So he is. Did was that so that, those stories are real about they his? Are. So the first time I saw him play, and I kind of you know how you sit in in rookie camp and you kind of go, I'm better than that. You know, you start comparing. I'm sure. better than that guy. I played at this level. I'm better than that guy. Like he was better than everybody by a long shot. Like, he was just better. He has really innate basketball sense. He has really good emotional balance, you know, as a player. Um, He knew how to make shots. He was just, well, he was experienced above his age and and just had a much better basketball sense. Um, You know, he and Magic are kind of two. They saved the NBA. They literally saved the NBA. Those two guys had, um, as players, sixth sense about how to make people better. And Larry Bird was absolutely one of the one of the game's best trash talkers. Um, and he did it his whole career. What's the What's the uh, best thing trash talking wise that he ever said to you? Though, like I I saw him on court say to people. This is what I'm going to do. You can't stop me. And I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. And then he'd do it. And they said, I told you you couldn't stop. Like, <laughs> that's just Larry. Larry that's was like, rude. and he would, he would do that in the middle of game sevens. He like, but at camp, he was, he was just like, you can't, you can't guard me. Cause you know, there's this whole thing about black players who thought white players may not be as good as black players. And, and people would walk away from playing against Larry going, he just humiliated me. Because like, <laughs> he, he could flat out ball. He, could, he was just a great, great player. Um, and the nicest guy. You know, it's like he was competitive, but very humble dude. But, like, if, if you challenged him on court, He'd let you have it. Yeah. So like uh, one of those like the nice, a good friend, nice guy in person, but right. on the court was not. Yeah. Not the guy you want to piss off. He's the guy that could get thirty in a quarter. <laughs> right. It's like the, there's an MJ story out there where uh, somebody said something to him at at um, I think it was at like the end of the first quarter or something. Somebody said something to him or end of the first half. He's like, you know, you're not that. Somebody makes one comment and then he scores forty in the second yeah. half. Yeah. Like there's some guys, you know, Michael. Kobe, um, Larry, Magic, Kareem, like you piss them off enough and it gets their adrenaline flowing. They have innate skills. They know how to score, when to score, how to do things that get you in foul trouble. They're just ahead of their – all of those guys were ahead of their time. They were well ahead of their time. And Larry was really ahead of his time. Because when he came out of college, you know, he was a little bit older, but he, you know, he hadn't played this robust college schedule like Magic did at Michigan State. You know, he played in the Big Ten. That's competitive. Mm. You know, Indiana State's not playing that kind of schedule. So when he did play against more competitive players with more competitive experience, he stood up. And I thought he was a phenomenal player. Um, one of the best trash talkers. He took he took no prisoners. He was like, <laughs> I trash talked everybody. If you if you say something to me and you get off kilter, I, I'll help you find your way back. You can all get it. Yes, you can all get it. He was an equal opportunity trash talker. Were you a trash talker on the court? Um, time to time, yes. Uh, I didn't have that kind of need to trash talk. I figured that no matter what, I'll just beat you. So I didn't think it was necessary. There were times when most people would say, like, I'd have moments when sure. I would say something like, you have no chance. Like, that you can't guard me. You'll never be able to guard me. And tonight I'm giving you 40. <laughs> or I'd just say, we're going to win. You're going to lose. And I don't know how that, what's that feel like? Knowing, <laughs> like, almost immediately, you're, you know we're going to beat you. So... Um, but I didn't have that repertoire like some guys. Some guys just have a repertoire of trash. Yeah. <laughs> they build it up over time, you know. 
Yeah, they're they're waiting for it. They're, they're waiting. Yeah, they've developed a skill set around trash talking. The only thing about trash talking is sooner or later it backfires. Sooner or later, somebody does. Get somebody you. does get you, and somebody does say something, and somebody does make you fall. You know, I kind of watch football, and I watch guys who have really good football skills, dribbling or controlling the ball, and they can make one quick move and a defender falls and you kind of go oh that's terrible oh like, the guy the michigan stars player that fell down when, when Mumu crossed him up at the edge of the box in or the when first he, half. or when jesus absolutely wrecked somebody at, in at the, maryland yeah. Uh, yeah yeah fantastic stuff yeah. so let's uh let's move into uh transitioning from the after you're drafted by the celtics to, to moving to to play in europe well it all came about because an alum from Columbia said, hey, I've got this uh, company, which happened to be a company that was the, the, the world's largest pharmaceutical market research company called IMS, Intercontinental Medical Statistics. Um, he owned the majority of the shares. I, I would liken it to or compare it to A.C. Nielsen, except it was for pharmaceuticals. Um, and he owned this business. Uh, unbeknownst to me, he'd watched most of my college basketball games when he was in New York. His corporate headquarters was in London. And he said, look, if you don't make the NBA, would you like to come work for me in London? And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, that's, that's further away. So I graduate the end of May. I, the end of May, I go over to see London. Didn't like it. Cold, rainy, wet, miserable bad food, all of the stuff that you hear about generically. Um, got drafted by the Celtics, worked out all summer. Um, he gave me a summer job, and I did some work for him over the summer. Went to camp the night before my before I left for the Celtics rookie camp, my right arch fell. Um, and so I went to camp anyway. Uh, I only played one day. But he said, look, if you don't make it, he called me the day before and he said, look, I hope you don't make it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, said, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, but it was ironic because I didn't make it and I went back to California after rookie camp and literally went to London. And we went on tour with the team and like – the first trip I ever made in Europe, we stayed at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. We actually stayed in the stadium. They wow. had rooms in the stadium. So I'm in the Olympic Stadium where Jesse Owens had won his Olympic goals, where Hitler had done his thing. So that was my first trip. That's intense. To, to wow. Europe. And like preseason training was run the stairs, use the track. It was, you play games at night and you do your conditioning in the morning. The Europeans train that way. They, they do all of their technical work and then they train as a team at night. So you do your shooting and conditioning in the morning and then you practice at night. Mm. So we did that. And, um, that, that my, I was expecting to be in Europe for a year and I stayed 20. <laughs> um, I was expecting to be in London and then transfer to one of his other, he had offices in 37 countries. He's like, pick one. And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty cool. He had a, he had an office in Ambler, Pennsylvania, which is where their U.S. headquarters was. He had a small office in Menlo Park on the West Coast. He had an office in London. He had an office in Frankfurt. He had, not, like, he had offices everywhere. But it was kind of like pick one. Um and so I stayed a year, and he said, look, if you want to play while you're here, why don't you play? And I was like, eh, I don't want it to get in the way of work. And he's like, eh, don't worry, it won't get in the way of work. He knew, like, I was going to come and play. And I was really the first uh, point guard. Usually the two Americans who got picked were usually of size. They Big usually, men. Yeah, they were usually a power forward and center or two power forwards and so I was the first point guard to arrive and play on a team and really kind of transform the perception of guards playing in Europe. Um, and, you know, I played a year, got player of the year. We were 50 and five. We lost five games. We, we won the cup. We won the league. We won the playoffs. We were undefeated. We lost one game in the league. 
Um, we got a chance to play against Real Madrid, which was the first time I had seen this whole football, basketball collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a chance to travel kind of all over Europe, and it was a really cool experience. I stayed two more years in London. Then I went to uh, Scotland and played five years. Uh, worked for David Murray, who ultimately ended up buying Glasgow Rangers. Um, so he bought that team. Um, and then I did two years in Manchester, the year I played at Manchester United before I ripped up my Achilles tendon. Oof. Took a, <laughs> took a year off. You did, you did. If you're going to do an injury, you did the big yeah, one. Yeah, I did the big one. But the funny thing is, you know, it's different for – um, guys that are smaller, mm. they recover differently. Like big guys who snap an Achilles tendon tend to have different levels of issues. Um, there's more of them. There's not as much of me. So I was, I snapped mine August 31st. Um, and I was playing again February. Wow. Wow. Uh, and, I didn't play competitively, but I was actually on the floor taking shots, running around, and then I played in a game in May, which is nine months later. Wow. Uh, so That's fast. Yeah. And it was really cool. I moved back to London uh, in 1989, and I was there until I moved to the States in 1999. I think for uh, for one specific listener, uh, he'll he'll find this really interesting. Uh, one of the the London clubs you played for was Crystal Palace. That is true. Uh, shout, out, shout out Taylor. <laughs> two different two different stints, correct? Yeah, I played at Crystal Palace my first three years, and then I played at Crystal Palace my last three years. Um, I went back to help elevate them from second division to Premier League, um, and we built this kind of academy of training. We had lots of teams. We had you know under. Under 11, under 13, under 15, under 17, under 19. We built all of that in three years. We did the same with uh, a women's program. Um, And then we got promoted uh, the first year. So we played about two miles from Crystal Palace Football Club, which is at Crystal Palace National Sports Center. Um, And the first time I played at Palace, the owner of our club was also part owner of Crystal Palace Football Club. He just didn't tell us. (laughs) Right. So then when he passed away, our separation, we just had it in name, but it was never Mm. kind of connected. But people always saw us as Crystal Palace. Well, there's there's only one Crystal Palace football club. And yeah, um, it was really cool. Uh, And playing at Crystal Palace was like I, I always it's my fondest memory of playing in Europe because it's a legendary national sports center. It is where they have all of the big track and field in Europe meets. Um, and as a national sports center, it's where all the Olympians train. Was that your transition there into like front office management, that type of thing? Um, it actually came when I was in Scotland because the owner said, look, I want you to be player coach. And I was like, I'm 24 years old. Like, I, <laughs> oh, what do I know about coaching? Albeit I had done a lot of teaching and coaching, you know, even in high school with little kids. And so it transferred and I was a point guard and I ended up hiring a good friend of mine named Paul who would who ended up being my assistant for the first year I was there. Um, So I did a little of everything. I was the head coach. I was the GM. I was the head of all commercial activities. Um, And, you know, Edinburgh is 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 a really cool city. Um, and they have two football clubs there, Hibs and Hearts, uh, which kind of like on the east side of Scotland, there's Rangers and Celtic. Yeah. Um, and those two teams really passionately, fervently do not like each other. Right. Um, and so I tended to stay neutral when it came to football discussions in Scotland. You know, you go to a Hibs game or you go to a Hearts game and, you know, you kind of go – which team do you support? And I'm like, both. I support Edinburgh football. How about that? Um, so it, it, it was – that was my first real understanding of how passionate people are about football, the legacy, how people were born in the f- football families. Like mm-hmm. if your parents are 
hearts of Midlothian fans, you will you be are. too. Yeah. Or you will not be a part of that family. <laughs> um, the yeah. same with Hibernian. If your family are Hibs fans and you were born into it, that means your dad and his dad and his dad. The legacy around football clubs in the United Kingdom is unlike any other. Like, and and that doesn't it doesn't matter whether it's Division Four or Premier League. If you were born in as a Chelsea fan, then you will always be a Chelsea fan. Like, there's no I'm I'm gonna support Tottenham. Like, that just won't happen in your family. Um, and your parents have tickets, and your parents' parents have tickets, and so it just gets left, and it's. It's unlike anything I've seen. I saw that at United, and like the difference between United and City is United is the traditional. Yeah. But so much of football is, you know, based around religion, like especially in Scotland. You know, if you're either Catholic or Protestant, mm-hmm. it's the same in England, even though it's quiet. It's, you know, this is a Protestant club, or this is a Catholic club, or it's a Jewish club, or it's like. None of that matters because they now have fandom because of social media. Fandom is everywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. Matthew. Well, I was just thinking. Um, so you you spent a lot of time in in Europe. You spent a lot of time in England. Uh, you played for Manchester United. You count yourself as a Liverpool fan. I do. Yeah. How, how did that? How did, how did this come about? So when I first got to the UK, Liverpool was. The best team in the world, right? They had Kenny Dalglish. They had Graham Souness. They had Ian Rush. They had, you name all of the great players in Liverpool, and they were there. Bill Shankly is the manager. And I was just attracted to, A, how they played, and, B, the tradition. The whole, you'll never walk alone. This was before Hillsborough. This is well before Hills. But they were the first team that I saw play that I was like, I don't understand this football thing yet. But they play. They seem to play it better than everybody else. My second favorite team was Tottenham. And only because, because they had Glenn Hoddle. As I got there and was there for long enough, they had Glenn Hoddle. They had some really talented players. Um, and I like the way they play. For me, football is is a style thing. Like, I, I kind of like to watch people who – it's kind of like the reason I like to watch Brazil play. The ball is always, like, always on the move. And I always said when I was a coach in basketball, I want to play basketball the way the Brazilians play football. Mm. The ball's moving. They, they've got a really good style quotient. They – you know, it 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 is fun to watch. And so – the day I got there, I started watching. You know, you don't have any choice in England. You got to pick a club, right? You <laughs> sure, have to pick sure. a club. It's like if the three of us went, people would be like, uh, "Like, this is the pub first question, Breezy. Who do you support?" And you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but, but it you does, better have somebody. But it better be an answer. <laughs> it's gonna shift the conversation. Sure. Like, if you said, hey, I am a Brentford fan, people would be like, okay, good. <laughs> okay, I get it. Everyone's allowed their choices. <laughs> Everybody's allowed their choices. <laughs> if if Matt said, hey, I am a, I don't know, pick a club. So. He's, a, he's a Spurs fan, so he's uh, he's already got his own problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got 99 of them, but trophy yeah. ain't one. Trophy's not Winning one. a trophy's not one, huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a CFC fan too, so that's yeah, that's that's well, good. You too. got a whole bunch of trophies. All you gotta do is go to go to Smo's shop, go to <laughs> go to CFC shop, and they lined up like that's true. The that's first true. time I walked into this, walked into the stadium, and I went into the shop, and I was like, "Who won all those trophies?" I was like, "The club did." I was like, Ew. "The thing you need to know about those trophies, Matthew, is that don't do it. We've never won the big one yet." <laughs> that's right yeah that's right that's yet. right i hope yet. you understand why i can't say yet <laughs> matthew's a superstitious sports fan speaking of superstitions um so skip around here you've been in a lot of places and, and i don't want to 
I would love to do a deeper dive at some point on some of those other places. I want to do them justice. But you, you've been a, a, an executive and a player in a lot of places. Do you have any sports superstitions that either in those particular places or that carry over um, even to now? Um, number one is I do not like to be around other human beings when I'm either preparing. When I was a player, I didn't like to be. I, I drove to games on my own. Hmm. I didn't like to talk to people before games. I didn't have conversations. I like I was in my mind I'm preparing for the battle and the battle is most important. So, you know, I I didn't like to talk to people. Um as an executive, I don't sit near people when I'm watching games. I don't cuz I my wife will tell you when I watch games at home and if it's a team that I support like for the years that I was in Brooklyn, like I would just say, you have to go somewhere else to watch this game. <laughs> you have to go to another room. You, like I can't have a conversation because ultimately it becomes, well, what happened? That was a bad call. What do you think? And I'm like, in my head, I know what's happening, but I don't want to talk about it until <laughs> like at the end. Um, when the 49ers play, mm. like, I can't have like if I can watch the game, I'm not having a conversation. Phone is off. That's it. I'm done. Like, sacred time. Sacred like that two and a half or three hours. And my mood shifts if we win. Right? Like if the Niners win, where are we going? Right? <laughs> yeah. If the Niners yeah. lose, I gotta prepare for work tomorrow. <laughs> right? I'm not having this. So I, I get to Chattanooga and, you know, I'm watching games and I'm trying to find places where I want to watch. I want to watch from a perspective of are we playing good football? Are we are defensively? Are, is our scheme working? Like I look at it from a coach. I also look at it from an executive. And then I like to walk around and see what traffic flows are like. I like to watch, well, how many people come to the shop early? Do they come before the game? Do they come middle of the game at, you know, at halftime? Do people run out? Do they, where are they going? So that I understand how to make the experience better. And I can't do that if I've, I've got. Someone's chirping yeah, in your ear. It's like asking so you questions. That's, that's how I flow. I, I watch games on my own. I'll sit on my own. People will be like, what a weird dude. Like, he's just sitting <laughs> here. I'm like, but I'm trying to gather the experience to see how I can make it better or more efficient or more fruitful or so that our fans feel like he, they've got a sense of what we need to have an even better experience than we already have. Sure. Perfect. How did you transition back from – well, actually, let me – uh, I've read in part of your bio and I've listened to some of your interviews that you, you talk about a, a stint in NFL Europe. What mm -hmm. was that? How did that come about? And what was that like? So I was at the end of my career basketball wise and um, the Monarchs were looking for a GM slash team president. And they kept asking, like they kept asking me, would you be interested? I was like, nah, I'm good. And then they asked and I was like, nah, I'm good. I like I love football. I am an NFL fan, and I never saw myself working in the NFL. Um, but they kept asking, and then they made me an offer, and I was like, "No, nah, I'm good." And then they made me another offer, and I was like, oh. <laughs> And then they made me an offer, and I was like, "That'd be stupid not to say yes." It's five games. Uh, it isn't, you know, kind of. It's not like a normal NFL season. It's five games, and it's the spring, summer, and then you're off. And so the experience was really helpful. Uh, I realized how big the NFL is. When you work in the NFL, you realize how big it is. Mm. The business is easily double the size of every other business. The television numbers, uh, the finances, the partnerships. It's the only sport in the world that owns three days a week. Yeah. You plan your life around NFL football. It's not the other way around. So you don't go out if your team's playing Sunday. You don't go out if your team's playing Monday. You now don't go out if your team's playing on Thursday. Yeah. And your day is based around, well, where are we watching the game? Like, are we, are you a Titans fan? Where are we watching it? 
that's how big the NFL has become. They own three days a week. Yeah. So working there was really educational. Uh, I, I think Premier League football learned a lot from the NFL back in the 80s and 90s, how to commercialize their club organization. They arrived on the NFL's doorstep and said, teach us everything about merchandise, everything about marketing, everything about sponsorship and partnerships. And they took that back, and hence the Manchester United of the world. All of a sudden, you started to see all these co-branded things and merchandise shift and stores and, hey, we could try this because what Premier League football has is legacy. Yeah. The NFL doesn't have legacy yet. But Premier League football has hundreds of years, what feels like hundreds of years of legacy. So I worked there. Uh, the Monarchs were in a super competitive city for sports dollars. Uh, there are 14 football clubs in London. I think there's five Premier League. There's Chelsea, Tottenham, West Ham. Um, I'm missing somebody. Palace. Palace. Arsenal. Brentford. Arsenal, Millwall, like there's 14 clubs. There were also two basketball clubs, four um, Premier League cricket clubs, three rugby league Premier clubs, and then three rugby union clubs. And then there was a hockey club. like Crowded market. And all the culture, all the tourism, all of the theater, all of the restaurants – so a, a NFL Europe League team is going to have a hard time finding traction. Um, and ironically, my boss was Oliver Luck, who... Oh, wow. Andrew Luck's dad. Andrew Luck's dad. And he was uh, the kind of president of NFL Europe. And his boss was one Don Garber. <laughs> oh, Wow. So I did not know that yeah. I didn't, I knew Don Garber was in the NFL for a long time before MLS. I didn't know that he was in NFL Europe. Yeah. He was the president of NFL international Okay, and the architect behind, you know, NFL Europe and keeping it afloat and the, the, the partnership with Fox because Fox paid for most of NFL Europe's operations. The NFL uh, owners paid a million dollars a piece to have kind of the benefit of the, six teams that were there but don oversaw that and you know i got a chance to sit with him uh paul tagliaboo would come to games in london so it was a pretty cool experience because you're getting to watch and see the standards by which the nfl operates they are the highest standards in sports like you can't put eighty thousand people in the stadium and not have super high standards for yeah. safety for taking care of your fans for really the experiential stuff that really the, the NFL really can do on their own that's that's really untouched. Beautiful. We're going to run – we're not quite done yet, but we're getting close to to a hard out here. So let's transition into some, um, some CFC questions and some food questions. Um, yeah, we'll definitely – we, we'll want to have you back probably by the end, end of the season or so, sometime during the offseason. Sure. And, if, yeah, uh, if you're willing to, to talk, because I mean, uh, we've got we've got a whole segment of your career we haven't even talked about. Sure, um, I'm here, happy to come as often as you want. I don't 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 tell us that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell don't, us don't that. Don't tempt us with that one. Um, but C, CFC wise, how what I mean, one of the overarching questions we didn't put it out to a lot of people. We put it out to a select people that we were going to have, um, and we would love to do a longer listener schedule. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to uh, inundate you with you know you've been on the job what thirty something days. Yeah, didn't feel like it was fair to let everybody. I mean, they can come up to you in person and answer. Right. But if you give somebody uh, an online form, they can they can get a little aggressive with the questions. But one of the main questions is like, and I'm sure you've heard about ten different versions of this question, but. What are you bringing from someone who hasn't been a soccer executive, at least exclusively a soccer executive? Um, what do you bring from outside of soccer into being a soccer executive? Well, I, I tend to look at it, you know, a couple of ways. Number one, I have a partnership with Rod Greenwood, Underwood. Like, it, football operations is what he does. Um, and I think my success as an executive is understanding you know, where the lines are and the lanes that you need to be in. Um, I'm CEO, and yes, Rod, technically speaking, uh, reports to me, but I, I can't tell him how to do his job, um, and I won't. And I think he's an expert. He knows what he's doing. His record speaks for itself. 
Um, and so I, I think number one, what I bring is the ability to separate my job into and hopefully find the right people to do their jobs. So that's number one. Number two, what I bring is years of experience around marketing, uh, years of experience around ticket sales, years of experience around partnership sales, years of experience around community um, involvement, uh, years of experience around understanding what our balance sheet looks like, what our P&Ls look like, uh, years of experience around how to grow and mentor staff, uh, years of experience around learning how to build relationships in markets, whether that's London Edinburgh, Manchester, Atlanta when I was in the WNBA, New York over seven years. Um, so I, I bring that to Chattanooga. The thing that I think I bring now most is the ability to ask questions and be curious about what people would like to see and how they want to participate in the club that they love. And then trying to figure out how to do that efficiently Look, there's no secret if we could get attendance up and we get more fans and we get more season ticket holders and we get younger fans and we get female fans like this isn't rocket science. Like we're we're clear about our mission. Uh, How do we impact the community? How do we do the right thing by the community and how do we do more in the community so that we become, you know, the talking point? This town is is up for and ripe for us being such a central part of people's lives that what are you doing Saturday? What do you mean? What am I doing? So I'm going to game like this. And that's where the, the foundation has been very solidly placed for us to build on. There's there, there are ways that I can bring different ideas. Like what do we do with fan experiences? Can kids and groups participate in things that they've never been able to participate in before whether that's pre-game halftime post-game like what do we do to enhance the fan experience and to create even better outcomes going forward and that's what I bring the ability to listen and hopefully in partnership with what our existing fan base is what the city wants to do what the region could want to do with our club to make it bigger and better and more efficient and more fun. Cause this, this sport is about joy. This sport is about fun. This sport is about enjoyment. Um, there's a passion for a, the sport, but b the club and you want to harness that. And how do you include more people? I love that. I love that. A couple rapid, and I have a million questions on that, but I'm going to save them for another time. A couple rapid-fire food questions. Pineapple on pizza? No. Coffee? Tea. Tea. How do you take your tea? Uh, with lemon and honey. Okay. No, no milk. No milk. No milk. Did they, even 20 years in England, uh, did no, still no milk. First day, the, first, <laughs> the first day somebody offered me tea, I was like, that'd be great. So they made the tea, and I said, what is that in the tea? And it was milk. And I was like, yeah, no, (laughs) absolutely not. That's not, that's not an option. (laughs) Uh, regular fries, sweet potato fries or tots, regular fries with Lowry seasoning. salt. there we go. Okay. Love that. Okay. Best fast food burger. Wendy's best fast food fries. McDonald's. What, What is your ideal burger? Like, uh, Wendy's or otherwise, but, bur- but how do you get your burger? Actually, uh, I'm going to recant my best <laughs> burger. There's a place in New York called Jackson's Hole. The greatest hamburgers ever made is Jackson's Hole in New York. The burger is about that big. The best way to have a burger is cheese, bacon, lettuce, tomato, mustard, ketchup, and of course... No, no onions. onions. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going there. No onions. How do you eat your steak cooked? Well done. Um, well medium, done. Medium well, no red. Closer to well than than medium. Steak sauce? A1 or whatever the restaurant's 
steak sauce is. So you are not a medium rare kind of guy. No, I'm. I am well done. All right. What kind of sides with your steak? Uh, salad, baked potato, anything, orange, carrots, corn, green beans. Don't do cauliflower. I do broccoli. That's a late thing in my life. Broccoli? <laughs> Adding broccoli? Yeah, yeah, the whole broccoli thing was like, yeah. But then I had a really good family friend who figured out how to make it taste like good. And then I've been a broccoli convert. Hot dogs? All beef, mustard. That's it. My guy. No, no ketchup, no onions. Chili now and again, but I, I have to be somewhere that I'm not around other human beings because <laughs> chili dogs get messy. Yes, they do. And I don't want yeah. people to be like, "What a slob that guy is." <laughs> <laughs> Last one. You're you're feeling like you need a a cheat meal, right? You're you're like, I'm going. I need the greasiest fast food. What's the what's the guilty pleasure? Mm. Um, fast food would probably be. Uh, Either a street taco from some place that you put your stomach at risk. Yes. Yeah. Or you find, which I have yet to try, but I have seen in Chattanooga, street side barbecue joints that like you see it and you're passing this on the corner of a gas station and it's the guy that's like, he's got the smoker and he's got everything and it's like, that's got to be good. But it's also the same risk. <laughs> <laughs> Your stomach is at risk. But I'm like, I'm, I know that if I see a guy at a gas station with a smoker and I know he has been there all day, I know that there's a pretty good chance that he's cooked that meat through and through. He's put, some, he's put something on it. Yeah. You know, he's, he's put his, his whole thing into it. That, that secret ingredient might yes, be love. Right. Which the is, uh, addendum to that question is if you were making something at home for a comfort meal. Uh, I would oof, flatbread. Um, something that's quick, easy, you know, doesn't take a whole lot to do. Um, are we breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Your choice. Breakfast, French toast. There nice. you go. Uh, I do really good French toast. My wife would never say that, but she said, like, you never made it for me, but, but that's because it's unique to me. Um, French toast and a BLT. Okay. I'm a BLT fan. Love that. Well, Alton, thank you, first of all, for, for coming today. Um, I think one of the things that makes, and I think you understand this, one of the things that makes Chattanooga Football Club different from maybe a lot of the other places is that there is access, right? Yeah. There is there's a connection between the community and the front office. The fact that you're in my living room today is is obviously up to you. And and so thank you, first of all, for taking that um, and for being willing to take on the challenge of of, of guiding our, our football club in this next chapter. And we're excited to see to see what it is. Yeah, I'm, and I want to say thank you to to both you and matt and jamie and the fans certainly on saturday who who were very gracious in welcoming me like people don't know me from a hole in the wall um but the fact is you know my commitment is listen learn see what we do well do more of that you know because i always you know if you were to ask my staff i always ask this question well, what is it we do that works what is it we do that don't work and what is it we do that is missing? You know, what gives us that context? What's our secret sauce? And for me, I, you know, literally I just got here and I'm trying to learn the things that work well and stop doing the things that don't work well because the natural human instinct is let's fix the things that don't work well. No, sometimes it's just let's not do those. There are a bunch of things that we, we may be missing and let's figure out what, what those things are so that we can add them to what works. And I, I really want this club to be super successful. Um, on the pitch, off the pitch, I want you as our fans to be proud that when you see us, you go, I'm really proud to be associated with that club. As you have been for the last 15 years, but I want you to be more proud as we continue to grow. I want to grow our staff. I want to grow their skills. Um, but I also want to make an impact and change, help change the trajectory of some people's lives who, 
you know, I hope this club can do that, you know, really make a big impact. And in, in you know, that, that they feel like we can come to CFC, we can come to games, when we see them in the community, when we see them at events, we feel like that's our club. Those are our guys. Those And those are our ladies. You know, our team, our, our women's team had a, a huge trajectory change this year absolutely and i want to amplify what our women do and the impact that they have in sports you know it's it's even more appropriate now with the women's world club world cup but i really do want to amplify what our women do and and we're going to figure out ways to do that and and that's a hard tangent here but that's a hard conference to to break through which is our next goal to break into the upper echelons second place in the conference just won the wpsl yesterday yeah, Charlotte Eagles. It's a, it's a wild time, and we're going to get into that. I think on Wednesday, aren't we, Matthew? This week. Oh God, are we recording again? <laughs> I think it's I think it's Wednesday. <laughs> but anyway, let's end right there, Alton. Again, thank you, and uh, listeners. We'll catch up soon. Peace. Peace.